Welcome. Thank you so much for, well, I'm so happy. We feel really fortunate to be able to have you both with us tonight. I had a chance to meet for some coffee with uh, Nazreen last Saturday. Was that just a week ago? Gosh, a week ago yesterday. And so had a chance to get to know her a little bit, and it was exciting to meet you too as well. Arash. How'd I do? Great. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Um, hey, my name is Debbie Manning. I'm one of the pastors here at the table. If you're new here tonight, we have been in the middle of a series um, on our values, the things that we hold dear here at the table. We've talked about things like tangible compassion and um, being unapologetically human and what it means to be community-oriented um, and Christ-centered. At the foundation of it all is following the practices and ways of Jesus. So tonight, we are talking about what it means to be justice-driven. And it seemed very appropriate that we would get a chance to hear from you both and hear a little bit of, of your stories and your experiences and share that with us. And so we're grateful for that. And before I get into just asking a couple of questions, I'm not going to talk a lot. I'm going to let them do the talking. I did want to say just a little bit about what it means to be justice-driven. And for us... Here at the table, um, foundational to this idea of being justice-driven is Amago Dei, that every single person is created in the image of God, and that because of that then, we see the image of God. We see the humanity in every person that we come across, and that there's this call to treat each other with dignity. And so... You know, the table for a long time has been growing and learning and seeing places where there's um, systemic injustices. We're uh, learning and growing and seeing um, in all different areas. And I think for us, this call to do justice, that Micah 6, 8 verse has been something always near and dear to us as a community that do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. And when we think about doing justice, we Think about all those places where there's so much injustice and we think about um, the racism and the poverty and um, the inequity in healthcare. All those things that, that uh, we as people following Jesus feel called to speak up and stand with people that are in that fight. But in that whole category is the way we treat refugees and immigrants. And I think that's a space that you know, we're continuing to learn and grow to. So that what makes you guys being here such a gift to this community, that your willingness to share a little bit about who you are and your own stories and, and how we might come alongside um, within this Minneapolis community. So thank you again for being here, and I'd love to start out with a simple, just if you could each just tell me a little bit about you. Okay, can you guys hear me? Okay, cool. Um, I, my name is Nasreen. I was born and raised in Minnesota, um, so my heart is here for sure in this beautiful land of ours. Um, but my parents came to the U.S. from Afghanistan in the 70s. My grandfather originally came here in the 60s. He was one of the first, I think, yeah. first people from Afghanistan to come to the U.S. He came here to study medicine. And so he um, went to the U of M and he became a heart surgeon. And so um, he's kind of semi-known in the medical community for the work that he had done. Uh, and he slowly started bringing his family over. 
Uh, my dad came in the early 70s, and my mom came in the late 70s, and then I was born in 83. Um, I grew up in the northern suburbs and moved to Minneapolis as soon as I could, <laughs> um, and have lived here for almost 20 years now. Um, and I, I don't know, what else? I feel like Terry gave my other <laughs> background already. Um, I met my partner here on Instagram while he was in Europe doing work with the refugees. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, we met, fell in love, and we had similar values and got married. Now That's we're awesome. here. I love it. That's awesome. Thanks. It's only been one year. <laughs> we are one year married last week, and we're very happy about it. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for that. I think it's a good intro because I think one of the things we've understood over time is the importance of knowing one another and just even a little bit, hearing a little bit of the story is so important. But one of the things that Nazreen and I talked about last Saturday was a good way to start was just to spend a few minutes on the history of Afghanistan because I think a lot of us don't have a, a good understanding of that history and I think you were going to start maybe in 1970, Well, the history goes way back. Yes. Uh, so Afghanistan was actually created by, due to something called the Great Game. I'm not sure if anybody knows about that. But it was a great game between the Russian Empire and the British. Uh, the Russians were expanding their empire, moving further south, moving further east. And the British were in India, moving further north. The British tried to come in and conquer Afghanistan three different times. And every single time they lost. But what they did is they conquered more and more land. Um, so because of that, in the late 1800s, the king at that time decided to make a deal. Okay, you leave us alone, and we'll give you part of our land. So someone named Durand uh, was somebody that came in southern Afghanistan. And just on the map, he said, okay, I'm going to draw this line. And if you allow us to take everything south of this line, we will leave you guys alone. Mm -hmm. uh, and But one thing they did, though, is something they, they do all over the world. They, they did something called uh, conquer and divide and conquer. Uh, they've created borders through divide and conquer all over Africa, the Middle East, and now Afghanistan as well. So they divided uh, a, a very strong ethnic group called the Pashtuns. They put half of them in their territory and half of them in Afghanistan. 
Um, and one of the reasons they did that, one of the reasons they do that all over the world is because if you put different ethnic groups that maybe have had rivalries throughout history in a nation state, that's obviously a brand new, nation states are brand new. They've they all been created for the past 150 years or so. So they created something in Afghanistan, they put Pashtun people with a bunch of other tribal groups that never really were one group in one nation state called Afghanistan. Um, and they divided the Pashtun people and divided other people up north as well. And that's why Afghanistan was created at that point um, in the late 1800s. Um, and Afghanistan really is, is, is a nation state of two different cultures. It is a city culture, which is mostly in Kabul. Uh, and Kabul has always been kind of open to the west because the Silk Road went through Kabul. And it was like a center point for business and commerce and that th uh, throughout history. And then there's the tribal lands. Uh, the rest of Afga Afghanistan is very different from Kabul. Kabul has always tried to be the, the leaders, the kings have always been in Kabul. They've always tried to change the rest, of the rest of Afghanistan and make it more westernized. But the rest of Afghanistan has never wanted to become western at all. Uh, one of the reasons is, is because it's very tribal, it's a very mountainous country. Um, and throughout history, b before even the creation of Afghanistan, a lot of different groups from different parts of Central Asia moved into Afghanistan because they wanted to have more autonomy from the rest of Afghanistan, the rest of Central Asia where they've always been conquered by other groups. And because Afghanistan is so hard to be conquered because of such a mountainous terrain, they came into Afghanistan to have more autonomy and create uh, their own way of life. And they've held on to that throughout history. And that's why you've always seen, you know, they say Afghanistan is where empires die. Um, no one can conquer Afghanistan because people really have tried to hold on to uh, their ways. So in the past 150 years or so, there's been the tradition in Kabul where they've made deals, you know, with the Russians, they made deals with, with the British, with other groups, um, but the rest of the country has always resisted that. Uh, you know, in the 1950s, when the U.S. became more powerful um, and Russia was becoming more powerful, the U.S.'s biggest fear was the, the spread of uh, communism into that part of the world. So the U.S. started investing a lot of money into Afghanistan, especially southern Afghanistan, while Russians at the same time were putting a lot of money and power in the northern parts of Afghanistan. Um, the Cold War, and Afghanistan became the central point of that because they, the, the U.S. really feared like, hey, if the communists go into Afghanistan, if they take in, start taking Islamic countries, then Islam, the rest of the Islamic world can fall into communism as well, and that was one of the biggest fears. Um, so both groups started investing a lot, creating schools, creating dams, you know, roads, things of that sort. Um, and in the late 70s, uh, uh, you know, a group of communist Afghans decided to overthrow the monarchy in Afghanistan and create a uh, communist government in Afghanistan. It was called the Democratic People's uh, Government, but, you know, it was ultimately a socialist communist government. Um, and they ruled for about a year and a half, two years. Uh, during that time, the U.S. invested a lot of money and weapons into the resistance, which was mostly in the South. Uh, the, the Afghan communists felt like, okay, the, the people in the South, the resistance is getting too powerful. Let's ask the Russians, the Soviets at that time, can you come help us? The Soviets came and they kind of took over. Uh, they took over, they occupied the land mostly, they, they were in control for about 10 years after that. 
Um, and then uh, when communism fell, you know, obviously the communist government of Afghanistan fell as well. Uh, you know, at that time it kind of became a free for all. So all these different groups that were getting, uh, you know, money and weapons from the U.S. started fighting each other for power in Afghanistan. Uh, a lot of death happened in those years. During those, you know, those years, about seven to ten million Afghans left Afghanistan. So we had the largest refugee community. Most of them lived in Iran, in Pakistan, in India, but also a lot of them went to Europe, uh, Australia, the U.S., Canada. Um, and ever since then, it's been kind of like a free-for-all from different groups trying to fight for power. And, uh, you know, 2001 obviously changed a lot, uh, you know, after 9-11. The U.S. went in there to kind of under this, you know, this narrative of saving these poor, helpless Afghans, especially poor, helpless Afghan women. Uh, the whole damsel in distress narrative was really pushed. Um, they did create some opportunities for women in the cities. Um, but in general, it didn't change. And what really happened is that it created more of that narrative and created more of what's been going on throughout history is like the cities had one system of governments and then the rest of the country had a completely different system of governance. Uh, the US was very cruel outside of Kabul. Um, you know, bombardments all the time. And most, they, they say over 90% of the people that were killed by US strikes were civilians. Um, and with that, throughout, you know, from all those bombardments and drone strikes, uh, it created more of a culture for pro-Taliban. Uh, hey, if somebody's killing us, of course we're gonna join the, the other group that's resisting them, right? Uh, so it created more of that movement, and the Taliban were also getting funded uh, through uh, Pakistan's uh, ISI, which is their in uh, secret uh, intelligence service. Uh, and, you know, at the same time, while the U.S. has been in Afghanistan, it, you know, it, it did create some opportunities for people in the cities, but U.S. really never went to Afghanistan for benevolent reasons. Uh, the main reason they went in there was to have strategic placements in the heart of Central Asia, because Afghanistan is placed right east of Iran, which is a huge rival of the U.S., as you know, right south of the Russian uh, states, uh, and on our eastern side is China. South is the, you know, India and Pakistan. So having strategic placement in Afghanistan will allow you to take a, keep an eye on the Russians on the north, Iran in uh, the west, and China in the east. Uh, on top of that, Afghanistan has minerals in the mountains because it's a very mountainous country, uh, lithium. Uh, there's also a very important pipeline that goes through Afghanistan as well into Europe. Um, so if U.S. can control all that and extract the minerals and the resources in Afghanistan, it, there's a lot of money into it. They say trillions of dollars in Afghanistan, also opium. I mean, the, our, the medicine that we have, the opiates that we have, most of that comes from Afghanistan. Uh, it's not just heroin. You know, there's opiates are everywhere, opiates are everywhere, right? And that's a trillion dollar industry as well. Um, so. Afghans, that, Afghans did not have any kind of equipment and resources to be able to extract those things. Obviously, it was the U.S. that was doing all that. Um, 
and bring it to the West. So it was, it was very profitable. Um, and, you know, but at the same time, keeping the military in Afghanistan is also very costly for the U.S. So, I, you know, there's a lot of, these are theories, but a lot has been written about this, that the U.S. for the past year and a half or so has been making backdoor deals with the Taliban. Hey, we'll let you guys come take over the country um, as long as you let us, allow us to, con con you know, still extract these resources. We'll obviously give you a cut. You extract these resources, we extract these resources, you take over the country. It works both ways. You don't have to keep our military over here and uh, waste a lot of money. Uh, and that's kind of where we are with Afghanistan right now. But, because of, but also because of that, a lot of people have been displaced uh, because the Taliban are a form of Islam that's not um, native to Afghanistan. Um, the, the form of Islam that's been a native of Afghanistan that has been more, you know, Sufi style Islam that's been there for a long time. Um, mystical form of Islam. And these people have been funded by the, the Wahhabis in Saudi Arabia and also in Pakistan. They've kind of brought a form of Islam that, you know, that we haven't had historically. Um, and they've also have created sectarian walls as well uh, because the people that are, that, are, that are bringing this kind of Islam are people from the South who are Pashtun people and anybody from other ethnic groups or other uh, forms of faith uh, have been their enemies for the most part. So people have to, people have had to flee mm -hmm. for their safety. Um, so that's, you know, that's one of the reasons we have, you know, over seven to 10 million Afghans uh, outside of Afghanistan and as refugees. So Ashran, that gives me, or, or Arash, that gives me, I think that's good context for where we want to have this conversation go, and that's to get a better understanding of what it means to be a refugee. And we are going to get to Nazreen as well, but we had asked Arash to talk about um, some of your experiences because um, you worked so for years with refugees. And I think what's important for us as a community is to get a picture of, of what that's like to have to flee your country and what it's like to be a refugee because um, that's something we haven't experienced here in this country. And I think when we're able to get a picture of that, it helps us to maybe empathize a little bit and, um, to be honest, to be moved to maybe do something about it. So if you wouldn't mind just sharing a few stories um, of your experience working with refugees, that's something that give us a picture of what that's, what it's like to be a refugee. I mean, I can tell you that pretty much nobody wants to come to a whole new land where you don't speak the language, you don't understand the culture, you have to start completely from the beginning because they want to. They do it because they have to. They have no other choice. Um, Afghanistan is a very dangerous place. We came because we were going to die. We had no choice. We came because we were going to die. We went to Europe and then we came to the US. The refugees that I, I was working with Afghanistan in, in Europe, same exact story. Most of these people that I, that, was, that, I were, that I was working with in Europe, they were young men for the most part that their, their family saved a little money for them so they can travel across the lands of Iran and then Turkey and then finally make it into Europe. So the, the, the family's hope was like, hey, go to Europe, see if you can make some money and maybe get us to come so we can also leave Afghanistan and also our lives can be saved as well. Um, so the folks that are coming to the US, they're gonna be starting brand new. 
you know, they won't have anything. They won't have their educational background because, you know, once you come to the U.S., whatever you did in, in, in Afghanistan uh, doesn't count. You have to start over. Um, they won't have families. You know, they won't have any kind of roots. And starting over is really difficult. I mean, personally, when I came here at 10 years old, it took me a long time to adjust. Um, it was, you know, everything from being made fun of for not speaking the language, from being made fun of because of my name, uh, because of my family and who we are, because, you know, people calling us all kinds of names. Uh, it was a really difficult adjustment. I went through a lot, saw a lot, a lot of trauma, experienced a lot of things. Um, and it's adjustment, it's not, it's not easy. Uh, one thing I, I have noticed in Minneapolis versus in Los Angeles is that there's a strong Islamic community and maybe that will help some folks in, as far as adjusting to, uh, to Minneapolis. But it's, it's still not easy. Um, so I mean, I think one thing that we're trying to do and that seems really trying to do is make it as easy as possible for them. So as long as I feel like people understand a little bit more about who they are and how they can be of service uh, to them, and there's this adjustment they're gonna make, I think it's gonna be a lot better for them. Thank you. Well, Nasreen, I'm gonna uh, start with you here on this one, but tell us a little bit about the Afghan community here and what's happening, where are we at right now with families that are coming to Minneapolis? Well, I feel like Terry probably should be speaking more about that. Terry is the brains behind all of this, so everyone give Terry a pat on the back when you see her. Um, but within the Afghan community specifically, the organizing that we are doing, we've kind of evolved a lot. Because it, it went from um, people reaching out to me, people reaching out to my friend Amina, um, who had started this organization called the Afghan Cultural Society. Uh, she started it in 2018 because her kids were growing up and she, uh, the Afghan community that we had that was stronger in the 80s and 90s, it, their kids left Minnesota and moved to California for school and so all of the parents left too. So then the community kind of disappeared and then we had new Afghans arriving over the last 20 years because of the war. Um, and so she started this organization because she wanted to um, teach your kids about the culture. We didn't want to lose the culture. Um, so it went from arts and parties to or getting food and figuring out how to get close to folks in Fort McCoy and like pushing the Minnesota government to do something. Um, and it's been working out really well. We've evolved a lot. We all, there's about five of us right now that are in leadership roles sort of that are really focusing on stuff. So. I have been mostly the point of contact for the state and the county and um, the city and other organizations just to connect them with the right people um, and just to be an advocate to make sure that we do this right. We can do this right. Um, and there are little things that we can do that will make them feel special and make them feel more at home. So that's been my role. Um, my friend Amina, who is, also, is the one that founded the organization, she has been really focusing her efforts on the people in Afghanistan. So her mom is stuck there right now. Her mom was there visiting family and was there for a couple weddings and then all of this happened. And so she's still stuck there. Uh, there are no commercial flights out yet. The one flight out is 
to go to Pakistan and they're charging $2,000. This airline is charging $2,000 for a 45 minute flight from Afghanistan to Pakistan and then from there they can leave. Uh, so I, apparently the government or whoever, I'm not sure, has cut ties with mm -hmm. this airline now and they're trying to figure out another way out. But So she's focusing on how do we get the citizens that are there, the US citizens that are there, out of Afghanistan and um, what we can do for the filing humanitarian visas and those kinds of things. We have another young woman that is focusing on the support for the refugees at Fort McCoy. So okay. Fort McCoy is about two and a half hours away in Wisconsin and there are, I think that their capacity is about six to 7,000, but they were told that they had to make space for about 15,000 oh, refugees. Wow, wow. So people are on top of each other in this space. Somehow they've gotten some of our contact info and they, there are literally people calling us saying that they have been wearing the same clothes and the same underwear for since they've arrived. And some of them have been there for, I don't know, 50 days now, 50, 60 days. Um, so we have someone that has been connecting with them and trying to get them supplies that they need because they are really short. They're very, the, I think the biggest thing at Fort McCoy right now that is in need is formula. <laughs> they don't have formula, um, enough formula for the babies. So they are asking for volunteers. So if you know people that can volunteer there, that would be great. Mm -hmm. We have to go through a whole process um, and they want month to six month commitments. So it's kind of difficult. Okay. Um, we have another woman who is connecting with the folks that are, that are arriving, the refugees that are arriving, making sure they know that we are here to support them um, and they get connected to the things that they need and that they can communicate to us if things go wrong and then I communicate to the state and then we figure it out. Uh, who else do we have? Oh, we have another woman who is a, a doctor um, and she is making sure that health services and mental health needs are being met and that there are translators present and um, everything that we're doing is translated. There's a lot of work happening we have to think of everything because a lot of these folks are coming with nothing or a small bag. Um, so we're trying to do what we can to fill in all those gaps. And from what I'm hearing from the state and from other folks talking to people that are arriving in other states, we are pretty prepared at this point. Um, but there are a lot of needs that we still, we know what we need, we just don't have those things at this point. And so, I think that's kind of why we're here, is to see if y'all can help us make those things happen. That's um, awesome. Well, it sounds like from our conversation last weekend that when this all started, there wasn't a lot in place here. That there was a group of you that really had to scramble to put things into place. And you've, mm -hmm. you've done a phenomenal job. I mean, I heard stories, I've got a chance to talk to Terry, but it sounds like people have worked hard to put things into place. I've pretty much lost my wife to this. <laughs> I barely get to talk to her now because she's constantly busy doing some kind of organizing <laughs> for us. So yeah. It's true. We had to have a talk. So when he, <laughs> <laughs> when he, when he moved here, because we live in, um, on 38th in Chicago, mm -hmm. we live right on the block. And so when we, he came here, he was very much focused on organizing efforts for the block and for what was happening um, for George Floyd Square. And I had to have the talk with him and be like, did you come here for me or did you come here for this? 
And so now he has to have the talk with me. He's like, look, I know, but like we're married. We're trying to build a life. So it's cute. Yeah. You'll find some, you'll balance each other yeah. out eventually. We're figuring right. it out. Yeah. We're figuring you figure it out. out. One year in, you got some time yeah. to figure it out. If you guys, I'm thinking as you're talking, and um, what I can say about this community is that we don't have all the answers, but we've got a lot of heart, and we really want to step in where it's helpful. We want to be allies. Um, as you think about the conversation we've had tonight, what would you want all of us to know? Like, what would it be important as you walk away to go, yes, they heard that? I mean, I think it's important to know that it's, it's not easy just resettling into a whole new land. Um, I mean, I think one thing I just thought about, too, is, like, just our story. You know, I looked at my mom. I was like, my, you know, my, back in Afghanistan, my mom was a teacher. My dad was a math professor. They came to the U.S. My dad had to work security because... His credentials didn't work over here anymore, right? And my mom had to work in uh, stores, you know. Retail. Retail. Uh, Ten-hour days, both of them, just to be, uh, be able to pay for rent for us. Um, and the thing is, we came at a time where it was a little easier, you know, in the late 80s. And at the same time, we had a lot of family support. The folks that are coming here won't have much of that. Uh, it's much harder now to survive. Uh, just to, I don't know much, I, I don't know if there's one thing that I guess I want everybody to take away, but like, if you can help in some way, make their lives a little easier, please do, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I think you have a very important person in this church, Terry, that is in the center of all this. Uh, so reach out to Terry and see if there's a way you can, you know, help with uh, getting people resettled. Because it's not easy. I think I would say humanize us um, because for so many decades we've been dehumanized by the U.S. to justify these wars and these murders that are happening. Um, that's probably the biggest thing. Like even now when I, I just was at a baby shower and this young woman was asking me about my jewelry and I... I said, it's Lapis. And she said, where is that? And I said, it's from Afghanistan. She goes, Afghanistan? I said, yeah, that's where I'm from. My family's from Afghanistan. She goes, oh. And then she just walked away. Mm. And I was like, Aww. okay. <laughs> but like, that's not abnormal. Like, that's something that we've been dealing with for a long time. I mean, I grew up in Minnesota. I've been dealing with this since I was a kid. Um, and so I think acknowledging that we are human beings is very important. And... If you see people being disrespectful, say something to them. Humanize us, defend us. Like we're, the people who come here as refugees are not typically going to stick up for themselves. They don't want to rustle any feathers because they can't. If they get in trouble, they're, they're gone. Mm -hmm. So s stand up for them if you see this stuff happening. They've been through a lot of trauma themselves, so they already have a lot of fear. Um, so that, I mean, any kind of welcoming um, is, is really important for them. Well, I want to thank you. We could talk for a lot longer, but I want to thank you guys for taking the time to be here to speak honestly with us as we want. We want to learn how to step into these things, and I love 
the reminder to see the humanity in every single person and that as a community, that's what we feel called to do. And so we're grateful, grateful for the work you're doing, grateful for your willingness to be with this community, grateful for you, Terry, wherever you are out there. Um, and this community is a community that steps up. So we will continue to, to check on the things that you need and rally the troops. And um, last week we talked about, we were um, talking about being community oriented and between Matt's house, my house, the church, I mean, people have been dropping off stuff for the kits that we're putting together. But um, we're in for the long haul with you guys. And so wherever we can step in, we're, we are... Uh, grateful that we can so it's really appreciated and um you guys will are gonna be remembered for that work because mm -hmm. i know a lot of the afghan refugees that are here in minnesota and they will say that like those faith communities are what help them get the land on their feet so it's really important yeah. that you do this work yeah well so it's well, like bringing tears to my eyes i um i'd love to would you be guys okay if i said a prayer and then um, then we'll thank these guys. So let's pray. Holy God, uh, we are grateful for uh, the way you created us. We are grateful that each and every one of us are created in your image, God, and that you've created us to be in community, to be with one another, to be generous, to help each other, to grow together, to appreciate our differences and um, and then we're people that need reminding sometimes, God, that uh, we are all your beloved children and that we are for one another. So, God, I thank you so much for Arash and Nazreen and the, the pull on their lives, on their hearts to do the work, the hard work that they do, the self-sacrificing work that they do. So, God, I thank you and uh, I pray that you might move this community to step in to all the places you call. And I pray for all the Afghan refugees, God, as they step into a new place, and I pray that they'll feel welcomed. I pray for transition. I pray that, God, that um, they might have some hope as they start these new lives. God, we lift it all to you, and we pray it in your name. Amen. Will you guys thank these guys with me? You know, every week when we gather, we gather around the bread and the wine that sits here at the center of the table. And, and I was thinking as these two were sharing um, about this bread in particular and thinking about how when Jesus sat down with his boys, they were sitting down to celebrate the Passover, which is the meal that honors the Hebrew people from thousands of years prior to who were escaping out of Egypt as refugees. And they had to leave so quickly that the bread never did get the dough to rise and they kept the bread as the memory. And then I thought about Jesus who broke the bread and Jesus who had to go to Egypt as a baby, as a refugee to escape violence. Do we understand that the bread that we partake in every week is the bread of refugees? And so when you hear that invitation to humanize people, that should be on the forefront of our mind. I get chills thinking about that. Whenever we participate in this moment, 
it, it is not just some abstract, disconnected, disembodied religious movement. It is an invitation to humanize your neighbor. You are eating from the bread of refugees. And so that's what we do together as a people. We remember Jesus sitting down. And he takes the bread and he breaks the bread. And he says, this is my body. Whenever you get together in the future and you sit around a meal, take this and remember me. The same way he reached the center of the table and he grabbed the wine and he poured some and he said, this is my blood, the blood shed for the, new, for the forgiveness of sins. This is the blood of the new covenant. When you drink from this cup, remember me. And so that's what we do here. You can take out your thing in the little trinket that was provided to you. We take this bread and we remember that it is the body of Christ broken for each and every one of us, all of us. And then we drink from the cup and we remember it's the blood of Christ shed for each and every one of us, all of us. And then as a community, I want to invite you, if you are able, to stand with me as we say the Lord's Prayer together. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you.